Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand and live streaming available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott. It's been 10 years since Lawyers for Animals began advocating to improve the welfare of animals through education and the law. Lawyers for Animals is a Melbourne-based not-for-profit organisation, although they are starting to spread their wings to other Australian states. To help celebrate this significant anniversary, today we'll be broadcasting an interview I recorded earlier in the week with the current Lawyers for Animals president, Nicola Donovan. Nicola reflects on the past decade and we discuss the ongoing work of Lawyers for Animals. There's also an invite to their very special birthday celebrations coming up next Thursday, so please stay with us. That's all coming up in the next hour on 3CR. One less loved one at Christmas One less loved one on birthdays A year after the death in custody of 22-year-old Yamaji woman Jalika Du. Following her arrest for non-payment of fines of around $1,000, deaths in custody continue. Rally with the Indigenous Social Justice Association of Melbourne to a demand an immediate end to the ongoing deaths in custody. Full implementations of Recommendations 87, 92, 102 and all the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Justice for Ms Du and all who have died in custody. Implement measures to give the community control over the police. Build communities, not prisons. Join us on Saturday the 8th of August 2015 at 11am at the old GPO corner of Burke and Elizabeth Streets, Melbourne. For more information, call ISJA Melbourne on 93880062. Gonna rise up to break these chains and stop these killing games. Promote your community event, be it a rally meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. Hello, Nicola, and welcome to Freedom of Species. Thank you, Kate. 
Thanks for joining us to discuss a productive 10 years for the not-for-profit organisation Lawyers for Animals. Very exciting. I can't believe it's 10 years, really. It's gone yeah, quickly. Yeah, it has totally flown by. It's kind of, you know, it's a bit frightening in a way to think of, yes, it being 10 years, but it's also really exciting and it means that we've achieved a milestone that I'm not sure many of us thought was possible in the early days. Mm, I'd love to talk about the early days, but before we go there, some people may not be familiar with Lawyers for Animals, and um, I can remember it was almost a, a little bit of shock and a novelty when it first appeared on the scene. So can you just give an overview of what Lawyers for Animals is? Sure. Um, yeah, we we did get a few jokes about the name early on. I was asked how I was going to see the animals in my office, etc., etc. Um, Lawyers for Animals is a not-for-profit group run uh, entirely by volunteers. We're pretty small. We're based in Melbourne, although we have an expanding um, membership around Australia and our vice president is currently in Sydney. Um, We are both an animal think tank or animal law think tank in that we try to provide submissions and ideas to government, uh, we tried to engage with industry, probably haven't have dropped away from doing that in later years. Oh, not entirely. And we also have started uh, what we always intended to do, if we could, was start providing direct animal law advice. We've had to do that thus far through partnership with the Fitzroy Legal Service, who've been terrific and allowed us to run an animal law clinic at their service on Friday evenings in Melbourne. Can you talk a little bit more about that clinic? Sure. Um, Yep. So every Friday evening we have appointments at the Fitzroy Legal Service. They have to be booked through the Fitzroy Legal Service, but they are um, clients who are seen by lawyers from Lawyers for Animals, members of our group, who've had some specific training Although what walks through the door, you never know what you're going to get. Well, we have some idea of what we're getting before the evening, which is something we've worked out with Fitzroy so that we can do some prior research and try to give high-quality advice. Um, Thus far, I had the number of clients, but I think it's around 150 so far, um, the cases that we've seen. And, oh, it varies. We've had... um, Quite a lot of dog cases, so dog cases meaning dogs that are impounded or dogs that are at risk of being impounded or um, possibly for biting another animal or a person or it could be anything really. Um, We've had cat cases of course as well, Um, cats that stray outside known as property, people with neighbours who religiously trap cats, um, and we have a lot of ownership disputes, um, people who want to get an animal back or know that an animal that might not be registered or microchipped to them can still live with them. We have some vet negligence cases where um, people have had, or other negligence cases where people's animals have been not treated very well and we try to help them to secure a good outcome. Uh, We also really try to engage with animal activist groups 
Um, that said, we need to see individuals at the service, so people have to come in an individual capacity. But we're trying to expand the, um, the knowledge base of the animal activist groups as to what they can and can't do um, when they come up against an obstacle, how can they face that legally, and also have some ideas for campaigning and, um, and what are the more useful strategies. Now, not all of that is going to be legal advice, but it often touches on the legal, so that's what we try to advise on. And most of the cases that you're seeing, are these resolved outside court? It's very hard to say. Personally, I don't see all the cases. I'm only supervising maybe every second week or so. Um, I would say a lot of the dog cases are cases that might be going to court uh, through counsel, and so we're giving people advice on how best to run their own cases. Um, This is only one-off advice at this stage. If a case is terribly serious, it might be referred to the Fitzroy Legal Service um, for some sort of ongoing assistance, but to date, I'm not aware of too many of those. Mostly we are advising people on how to run. We also give have a referral service because we are acquainted with people in Melbourne who are running cases like this. Um, most resolved out of court. Yeah, I would say that most of them probably are. We we certainly write letters of demand, letters um, from the clients to other people. Oh, it's just so varied. I could I could mention a few different um, ways in which we've helped, if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. Some um, case studies would be fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to have to be careful, of course, because we certainly wouldn't breach the confidentiality of any of our clients, but... For example, quite a lot of them involve letters to counsel after a dog's been taken where um, there seems to be lack of understanding on the part of the person who owns the dog of what's going on and so we ask for more documentation, um, more explanation. We we try to uh, put forward ideas for negotiating outcomes for example, if it might be possible for counsel who's considering imposing um, a dangerous dog declaration to consider something else, perhaps by the clients obtaining a um, behavioural assessment if they haven't already done so, committing to training, etc., etc. We really work, we're working on behalf of the animals, um, but we are bound as lawyers to represent the best interests of our clients. So it's a really interesting situation often where we're advising our clients on how they might be able to be better guardians or things that they haven't heard about um, or realised they could do to make things easier both for themselves and for the animals. Um, Other circumstances, well... Uh, I think I can safely say that some of them involve neighbour disputes where um, there's been a fight perhaps between two dogs and a vet bill has been provided by one neighbour and and occasionally we've seen just extraordinary... I remember one extraordinary vet bill um, for a dog that ultimately didn't make it, but it seemed that that dog had actually put its head through the fence to the, into the other dog's yard and the other dogs hadn't actually got into the other dog's yard. So there was a bit of 
question mark as to how much the owners were responsible for the injuries to the dog and also what pre-existing conditions that dog must have had to require the kind of treatment that it required. And actually there was also a doubt about whether the dog should have been treated that extensively by the vets for that period of time rather than euthanized or euthanized. Um, anyway, we, yeah, we sort of prepare letters on all sorts of things. There was a... Occasionally we see cases where we're thinking, hmm, is this in the interest of the animal where someone has um, taken a dog from a breeder and had it transported across the country and then decided they don't there's something about the conditions of the contract that they don't like and sent the dog back across the country. I do remember some lawyers sort of raising an eyebrow, are we really helping animals here? But interestingly, in the end, um, I think we probably convinced that person that buying from breeders wasn't a really great idea and that there are fabulous dogs to be found in pounds and... Um, and they walked away saying that, yes, they'd, they'd really, if they were going to look for another dog, and I'm not saying they weren't suitable as owners, but if they were going to look for another dog, they'd be looking at rescue. Mm, the hardy hybrid breeds, <laughs> the, the <laughs> mongrels. <laughs> so, Nicola, can you take us back to the beginnings of Lawyers for Animals? What was it like at the first meetings? I can't take you back to the very beginning because I joined Lawyers for Animals at their launch event in 2005. So um, I suspect that prior to that, a bit like an iceberg, there would have been quite a lot of work done behind the scenes. I know that uh, Meredith Schumach in particular and Caitlin Evans, two young lawyers from Melbourne who had a real passion for animals, that they were really instrumental in starting um, the organisation, and then there were also a number of core executives who would have got together and and um, probably had quite a number of meetings before the launch event. But I only heard about the group at the launch and went along. I was invited by a friend who was already working with them, and um, yeah, and then I I suddenly got very interested and tried, despite my schedule at the legal service where I was then working, tried to get along to as many meetings as possible. Um, how did it run? Well, it was interesting. We didn't have a venue for meetings, so that was pretty interesting. We were wound up trying to find bars around the city where um, they wouldn't mind us coming and, and sort of sitting as a group. And if we, we bought some food or drink, then they would let us stay. But then we had problems with music and... Yeah, it was it was quite difficult until we got an office space, uh, which were kindly provided in 2007 by Kindness House, um, or the Kindness Trust, which then owned what was known as Kindness House in Fitzroy. Unfortunately, recently disbanded. But yeah, so it was. I can't say exactly what it was like for the original founders. I know that um, there wasn't sort of help that you could get these days through Justice Connect for organisations that are interested in um, becoming incorporated. So uh, I know they had some advice from um, Graham McEwen as a barrister and possibly others on how to get the organisation up and running and we're immensely grateful 
to those founders and we will be celebrating those kind of people and all the people who've contributed to keeping lawyers for animals afloat, um, particularly in the early years where it was touch and go. But yeah, also, also up to date, we have a fantastic team of executives at present. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Another aspect of the work that Lawyers for Animals do that I'm particularly interested in is putting in submissions for when animal welfare codes of practice are being drafted. Mm-hmm. It's always been a little bit of a unknown for me what that process entails and how much those submissions influence the final outcome. Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that we weren't a bit naive at first. The, the very first submission that I personally ever worked on was one for the Code of Practice Concerning the Welfare of Pigs. Um, this was a national proposed model code of practice. I think it was the first time they'd actually come up with this idea of having a national model code which would then be adopted by all states and territories. There was a real push on to get the laws made uniform across states and territories. And um, it basically suggested that the pigs should be kept in sow stalls and gestation crates and um, castrated without any kind of analgesia or or um, anaesthetic and we were very very unhappy with the proposed model code so we put in a submission as did a lot of groups uh, RSPCA and Animals Australia and I don't know the word Clayton's consultation was raised a few times it just it felt like we were almost being used so that they could say that they had consulted widely and then none of our recommendations, I don't think there was even an amendment, or, well, sorry, if there was an amendment, it was very, very minor. And the code passed, and um, we actually then followed up in Victoria with a specific campaign to try to get the model code of practice for pigs rejected by the Victorian Parliament because it, it still came down to being introduced into Victoria and then there was a chance if someone moved a motion to disallow it in the Parliament, there was a chance that it could be voted on by the Parliament. And I believe this was back in 2007, or was it 2008, we actually managed for the first time, I think, in history to have a, a code of practice voted on democratically by a Parliament, by elected parliamentarians rather than just declared law by the minister. Um, It didn't go too well. (laughs) The Greens moved the motion in the upper house to disallow the code and they managed to convince the DLP, the one DLP member, to vote with them. But the Labor Party um, and the Liberal National Party voted together to oppose the motion, so the code of practice came into force. Um, When I say they weren't happy about it, I think the Hansard on the issue was very revealing. We combined that that with a campaign by Animals Australia and ourselves 
to get people to write to their parliamentarians prior to the vote and urge them to vote to support the motion to stop the new code of welfare going through and to, um, to have it amended, basically. Um, and some of the parliamentarians said, oh, they appreciated all the calls and emails they'd been receiving, and some of them said that it was jamming their inboxes and they, they weren't happy at all with these crazy animal rights activists. Um, but I'm really proud of the fact that we actually got people to... Uh, parliamentarians who are elected to have to exercise their consciences, well, to some degree, and vote. And um, a couple of years later, we got Labor proposing a bill to stop the Parliament having the power to vote on codes of practice, which was very interesting, which we think was a reaction to our campaign a couple of years earlier because people were so unhappy with effectively committing to something that they didn't really believe in. Yeah, interesting. Um can we go back to the start of the process, though? Who puts forward the draft? Who's involved with that? Well, a bit uncertain about that at the moment because um, since the new federal government came in, uh, the funding to what was called the Australian Animal Welfare Strategy, which was the, I don't know how to describe it, a body that organised for uh, proposed codes of practice, model codes of practice to be written and then um, consulted, well, sort of put to industry and to animal welfare groups and to other stakeholders and put out for consultation. They've had their funding slashed. In fact, I think they've um, effectively been... Yeah, yeah. they have been disbanded. Yeah, so as to who's, how it's happening now, I believe they're just being written by the relevant department, which is the Department of Agriculture, <laughs> so you can imagine how um, independent they are from the industry bodies, and they're being written by them, and then I believe they'll then be put to the, what's it called, PIMIC, the, um, it's a collection of, of ministers from each relevant state and territory with um, jurisdiction over this area, and they have a meeting and they decide whether they're going to adopt this. And But to be honest, yeah, as I say, it's all a bit in flux, I think, and I'm not sure how it's happening at the moment, so I'd prefer not to comment on it. Something that is familiar to everyone who looks at the legal rights of animals is the need for animals to have standing in court and also that it their rights hinge on the idea that they are property. For people who are not familiar with this, could you just outline those concepts? Yes, this is crucially important and something that I'm extremely interested and concerned about. So um, animals in law in Australia, as in most jurisdictions, are considered uh, property, no different from your chair, table, car, house. Um, this means that if they suffer some sort of harm and you seek compensation for that, you're not entitled to seek compensation beyond the market value of the, the goods, the cost of replacing the animal. Um, that completely discounts 
the relationship that we have with animals. It discounts the value, the intrinsic value of the animal um, as opposed to, yes, a, a solid object or piece of property, a chattel. Um, this makes it very difficult in law also to advocate for the rights of animals because a piece of property doesn't have a right. Um, the current animal welfare laws are not established as for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animal Act, for example. It's not established as a, a law that gives rights to animals. It's merely protecting um, their interests or the interests of the people who own the animals. Uh, we need to overturn that. There are precedents in history where different forms of or different kinds of human being were certainly considered property and this was gradually overturned, slavery being the most obvious example, but also um, many movements such as the feminist movement uh, where women were once considered effectively the property of the uh, authoritarian male, male family member, their father or the husband. Um, children were considered the property of their parents uh, and didn't have individual rights, so child abuse and neglect and all of those sort of, sorts of things only came up probably or started to be protected and then children were given rights around the um, 19th century, um, also from child labour and things like that. Dis disabled people, um, people with intellectual Im impairments, were also only recognised in law, oh, and people with mental illness were also only really recognised in law or recognised that they had individual rights yeah, in the last couple of hundred years. So it's a relatively um, new concept to identify that animals have basic rights as well that need to be protected, but I think the only way we're going to be able to do this is if we gradually get a voice for them in the courts at present, if um, you hear of an animal being badly treated and you seek in some way to enforce the law uh, on its behalf, you will be told by the court that unless you are the owner of the animal, you have no real interest in the animal and you don't have standing. Um, this is slowly changing and we are trying to push for changes, but... We also need things like animal guardianship to give, um, give animals a right to have a person who represents them and speaks for them in court, much like the guardianship model for people with intellectual impairment or, um, or incompetent juveniles, people who are too young to represent themselves, um, people with mental illness. I think we need something like this for animals as well. Um, I'm not sure if I've explained it very well, but there's a movement in the US in particular um, run by a particular professor to try to get basic rights starting with the higher primates and, um, and then potentially working down. And obviously the rights won't be the same as those for humans. And in Australia, I'm certainly, or Lawyers for Animals, are certainly advocating for the basic rights of animals that are constituted by the five freedoms to be upheld um, in law over time. They're not the same rights. They're not freedom of speech. They're not freedom of political association and things like that. They are 
basic rights that are suited to animals and that I think on a common sense level most people wouldn't criticise. It's just that when it comes to the law, sometimes it drags a long way behind public opinion. So for people who don't know the five freedoms, could you just outline them? Sure. (laughs) I always tend to forget one, so I'll try and go through them. So there's uh, freedom from hunger and thirst. Um, This means basically that people who are involved in the care of the animals. This won't obviously affect wild animals where humans aren't having an impact on their ability to find food or water, but where they are, it may affect that. Um, There's freedom from uh, pain and injury. Uh, We don't want... this, This would particularly, I guess, be relevant for farm animals and animals that are being mass produced. Um, but also for companion animals and I guess for some wild animals in the way that they are treated. Um, freedom from uh, freedom to express natural behaviours, uh, keeping pigs in sow stalls where they can't be the social animals, uh, much like dogs, that they are, or and they can't forage and, well, basically do everything that a pig does. Um, They're effectively in solitary confinement, although next to other pigs, but they're not able to really interact and they go quite mad in those situations. Well, that certainly wouldn't be allowing a pig to express its natural behaviour. It's to do with animals need to be generally with animals of their own species and be able to interact with them. Um, Cows in... uh, Cows in Queensland that are held in pens instead of being allowed to roam freely over large distances in paddocks um, or further than that, they might also be considered not to be able to express their natural behaviours. I think I've managed to forget two of them this time. I think there's, um, what is it, freedom from hunger and thirst, which you said, freedom from express normal behaviour, you said, Freedom from discomfort, um, freedom from pain, injury, and disease, yeah, and then the, f- the freedom, sorry, yeah, freedom you from go. discomfort I haven't mentioned, and that's I think perhaps particularly relating to again the circumstances in which the animals are kept, but keeping an eye on things like temperature and um, and yeah housing conditions and things like that, which often aren't accounted for, including cattle that are being live exported up in Darwin that are left in um, the direct sunlight in very high temperature and humidity for extended periods. We've had a bit of work trying to get people to recognise that they do have an obligation to provide shade and that um, just anything to try to appease the suffering of those animals. Mm. And sorry, the last one? Uh freedom from, what is it, fear and distress, which um, should rule out slaughter. Yep. I think freedom to express natural behaviour would also be one that might potentially in the very long term rule out slaughter, but that's where it becomes interesting because the five freedoms are interpreted differently by different groups. Um, The RSPCA certainly supports the five freedoms, but as you know, they also support the slaughter of animals by um, by actually putting their branding on some kinds of meat and also on some kinds of egg. Um, so 
yeah, it's 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 a question of interpretation whether these five freedoms give animals a right to life or not. And some groups would say that they do, and some groups would say that they don't. And the interesting part about this is that the law changes over time to reflect public attitude. And just because the five freedoms were, if they were adopted now, wouldn't necessarily mean an end to slaughter immediately. But would it give some options in the future for development of the law in the way that Know, the women's movement or the ch children's rights movement or other movements have gradually gained pace, yes it might. Aboriginal singer Gurumul. I'm sure many listeners would be familiar with his unique voice, apparently influenced by not only his traditional clan music from Elkhart Island, but also the gospel hymns from the Methodist church that was also on Elkhart Island when he was growing up. And the reason why I played his music today is because if you're fortunate enough to be in Melbourne on August the 8th, he will be performing at the Arts Centre in Hamer Hall as part of the Supersense Festival, uh, which sounds very intriguing. It's a new festival, and from their promo material, they say the Supersense Festival will be exploring the ecstatic, the extreme, and the sublime horizons of human experience, a hypersensory playground for the curious and the bold. It sounds like a really interesting festival. You can find out more information at the Arts Centre website. You are on Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves, and we're partway through an interview with Nicola Donovan, who is the president of Lawyers for Animals, an organisation that is celebrating 10 years, a decade of advocating for animals, specifically animals and the law. I find it fascinating, this idea that the social acceptability affects the courts. It gives us a um, hope for the future, but it's something that was also highlighted in Professor Stephen Wise, who you referred to just earlier, who is the president of the Non-Human Rights Project. He came out to Australia as the keynote speaker for the Voiceless Law Lectures. And what struck me when he was talking about legal personhood for um, chimpanzees, that 
he was trying to find a sympathetic judge who would be prepared to set a precedent and also um, to rule in favour of um, personhood, mm-hmm. which I, I found fascinating because from a layperson per, um, perspective, we are told sort of the courts are objective, um, that it's not about subjectivity. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Yes, difficult for lawyers to comment on this as we are required to uphold the, um, say the sanctity but the respect for the judicial system. So, for example, lawyers aren't allowed to individually criticise um, judges. But yes, working within the legal system, there is definitely a subjective element in every decision. I mean, the High Court... I couldn't say rarely, but I'd say the High Court quite often doesn't rule um, unanimously. That suggests that some people are uh, deciding one way and some people are deciding another. That's out of seven judges. So definitely there's a subjective element and people's natural, uh, their backgrounds and and their experience in life is going to flavour how they interpret things. Yeah, that is the nature of law, actually. You're right. It's got a much more personal element than people realise. The education of the judiciary is something that Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute, seems to be well aware of, um, and they're very interested in getting animal law to be taught at universities around Australia. How important is it to have animal law included at a university level so that we can see a more sympathetic uh, rulings in the courts for animal-related issues? Yeah, look, Lawyers for Animals also saw this as a pretty crucial um, step and very early on, I think possibly in our first year or two, we came up with a syllabus a proposed syllabus for an animal law course, uh, which I think was then contemplated to be taught at Monash University. Later, we were very happy when a move um, was made by a different group to have law taught at Melbourne University, at least as an intensive, uh, sorry, animal law as an intensive course. And we gave them our proposed syllabus, and I believe they've used that. Um, It's crucial to getting, well, it's crucial to changing attitudes, educating people, educating people who may well wind up arguing in the courts or indeed become the judiciary of the future or become parliamentarians because we know that quite a few lawyers wind up entering parliament um, or the public service. It's just a crucial element of education. It's also um, reflecting demand because I cannot count the number of emails I've had from students over the years, law students or potential law students, asking me where they can study animal law. It's, like, it's always a bit depressing because occasionally there are there there was um, a course that you could point to, but not not often. And it doesn't, or if there is one, then they might not repeat it for a couple of years or something like this. But it's slowly getting a toehold, I think. Um, obviously, the running of the first course at Melbourne University was met with um, met with a lot of support, and I think that really helped to 
make animal law not such a kind of controversial or ridiculous subject in the eyes of the um, conservative legal fraternity. So we're coming towards the end of the interview. What have been the highlights over the last 10 years? Well, we've had a few pretty small but in our minds significant um, victories. And when I say victory, <laughs> well, you've got, to take, you've got to take what you can in animal law. Um, it's a bit like another area of law I practice in, refugee law. Uh, it can be very depressing and frustrating at times. So just to point to a few of the very small things that I feel like we've, we've gained a, some recognition or achievement in. Uh, early on, there was a, an, and when I say early on, I mean early on in our history. In 2007, there was a bill proposed in the Victorian Parliament called the Animals Legislation Amendment Animal Care Act, and we put a submission in on that. Unfortunately, this is what happens with some groups that, well, in their early years, we managed to lose our copy of that submission, so we haven't got it on our website, but we did put a submission in because I co-wrote it, and we suggested things along the lines of um, getting rid of steel-jawed leg-hold traps, which were one of the more shocking things I discovered were still being used in Victoria at the time. And I mean the serrated steel-jawed leg-hold traps, uh, which just gives you a very shocking image in your mind of what they are doing, they were doing to animals. And fortunately, that was one aspect of our submission that did seem to be adopted, and the leg-hold traps with serrated edges, steel-jawed leg-hold traps, were abolished, but unfortunately the smooth-edge traps with rubber padding can still be used for trapping rabbits, foxes and wild dogs in Victoria. Um, so as I say, it's kind of like one step forward, but two steps back, or maybe a tiny step forward, but we still need to go a lot further. Um, then in 2009, I mentioned that there was the the move by Parliament to stop or prevent themselves from being able to vote on codes of practice for farm animals. Uh, this was through the Livestock Management Bill proposed by Labor in 2009. It was a very strange coalition of members who came together um, with, with our uh, strong campaign on this. The Liberal National Party voted with the Greens and the single DLP member in the Upper House of Parliament to pass an amendment to the bill which Labor had rejected in the Lower House. The bill then went back to the Lower House with that amendment, which would guarantee that the Parliament be able to vote on codes of practice in the future if a motion was put to disallow them. And eventually it was accepted by the ALP. So, yes, we sort of preserve that element of democracy, which I think is really crucial because in the future, if we want to oppose one of these codes of welfare, it would have been virtually impossible um, without that sort of link to our democratic right to approach our parliamentarians and, and get the public to let them know what they think about things. Otherwise, it would have all been in the hands of the ministers and sort of a step removed from democracy. So that was a bit of a victory. Um, we were also instrumental in getting a case taken up by the ACCC 
against certain chicken meat producers. Um, they were producing meat through the farming of what are known as broiler hens, and they were advertising that chicken meat as free to roam. And um, it actually started when I, I saw a sign for La Ionica chicken meat that said it was free to roam, and I thought, what does that mean? And I investigated and found out that they were referring to the chickens that were held in sheds um, in very large numbers, and we did not think they were free to roam in the, sense of, in the ordinary sense of those words. And the ACCC fortunately agreed, and they took several large companies, including Bayada, to court, and uh, they were successful in the federal court. So that was also terrific in that the companies were made to pay fines for misleading the public, and they were made to remove their um, free-to-roam advertising. Um, other victories, well... I don't want to go on forever. Uh, I think the Animal Law Clinic has allowed us to help people directly in a way that um, they might not have been re receiving help before. I know the community legal centres have been doing their utmost to try to help people with animal issues in the past, but without kind of general or specialised training in areas like the Domestic Animals Act or the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, people don't practice in animal law in their everyday work. So if they're volunteers at a legal service, they might feel quite put on the spot by questions about this. And, and um, yeah, so we're providing a place for people to be referred for that specialised advice. Um, I think the clients mostly have been satisfied, but... No, it's, it's hard to say because we're not running a legal service so we can't follow up and find out what happens with the clients after we've seen them or after we've seen them a couple of times. I think just holding together as a group and also the positive energy within our group and their willingness to engage on all sorts of things and compromises that have been made in our group over time, um, um, the willingness to... For example, adopt a vegan catering policy even when I think at the time a majority of the executive weren't vegans themselves, but we've, yeah, we've certainly honoured veganism over the years um, since adopting that policy. And, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's lovely to be able to have an involvement in a group like this and to know that there are more people coming forward. I think it's also the fact that our membership has built over time. It gives me real confidence that there is hope for improvement in the future. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if we diminish our uh, victories just because we realise just how huge, enormous the challenge is to advocate for animals. So you've outlined some amazing achievements over the past 10 years. And Nicola, I think you're you... right. I think it is knowing that, <laughs> knowing how small it is in the scheme of the kind of the suffering of the animals, does make you naturally rather humble about the tiny incremental change that has been achieved. But yeah, but that's a good thing. Humility is a very good thing, and it hopefully forces us to just keep aiming high. Mm, don't be too humble. 
You have got so much to celebrate and you will be celebrating with an event coming up on the 30th of July. Would you be able to um, talk a little bit about the event? Yeah, look, we're really excited. We wanted to do something to celebrate our birthday. We've managed to get a very good speaker. Um, We're very pleased that the Shadow Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, has agreed to come along and speak about um, the victory, (laughs) the lone victory perhaps that Australia has had against Japan in the International Court of Justice regarding whaling by Japan in the Antarctic. This case came to a decision in the International Court of Justice in 2014. Um, It's basically halted the Japanese whaling in the Antarctic for what they called scientific purposes. Um, We were certainly not the only ones who were wanting a case like this to be brought forward. Um, I-4 has been very fundamental in getting this case brought forward. And this particular Shadow Attorney General, I believe, was also instrumental in having the case brought. So, yeah, we're really looking forward to hearing his um, insights into how the case came to be brought and and how it was run. Um, So, yes, that's on the Thursday, the 30th of July uh, at 5.45 for a 6pm start um, at the Lionel Murphy Centre, which is very appropriate because he was a great animal, sorry, human rights lawyer, Um, but I consider animals just another version of humans, or humans another version of animals, obviously. Um, And you can RSVP to inquiries with an E at lawyersforanimals.org.au or look on our website www.lawyersforanimals.org.au for the flyer. And just finally, if people do want to become involved with Lawyers for Animals, how would they go about that and do you need to be a lawyer? No, you don't need to be a lawyer to be a member of Lawyers for Animals. We do have an an executive which is exclusively lawyers because we do want to keep um, our reputation as a legal organisation. But no, we have plenty of members who are not lawyers, um, many who are students or interested in becoming lawyers, but not necessarily lawyers at all. And we'd love as many people as possible to support us by becoming members. You can do that also by going to our website and looking at the um, support tab and you'll see how to become a member. Um, At the moment, I believe it's only $30 for um, people who are working and $10 for people who are students. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicola. And I look forward to raising a glass to cheers 10 years for Lawyers for Animals on Thursday night. Thanks so much, Kate, both for your program and for your support for Lawyers for Animals over the years. We really appreciate it. That was an interview with Nicola Donovan, the current president of Lawyers for Animals. In the last part of the interview, Nicola did mention the acronym I4. In this acronym-laden world, I4 stands for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And as well as supporting Australia in the Australia versus Japan case in the International Court of Justice, I4 has also convened a series of other legal panels that highlight Japan's influence at the International Whaling Commission, including 
buying votes. And the buying the votes has enabled Japan to keep open this so-called scientific research loophole which has enabled them to continue whaling, even though there's been a moratorium on commercial whaling since 1986. And this has allowed Japan to kill more than 14,000 whales in the name of science. And the vast majority of these have been in the Southern Ocean. So it just shows you how important this International Court of Justice ruling was and is. Of course, Nicola did mention that you can hear all about the International Court case at the Laws for Animals 10-year birthday celebrations coming up on Thursday. Um, Please visit either the Laws for Animals website to find more, more details about that or, as always, Freedom of Species puts links on our Facebook page and also the website of any uh, the information that we mentioned during the show. So you can visit Freedom of Species Facebook page or our website to find out more information about the 10-year birthday celebrations for Lawyers for Animals. It should be a really good night. Um, please RSVP so they know the numbers. Hello, 3CR listeners, and especially to those of you who tune into Out of the Blue on Sunday mornings. We've been having a great time bringing you news, issues and events from the big blue oceans for the past year. Now it's time for us to raise some money for the station and keep our show on air for another great year. This year, the Out of the Blue Trivia Night is back. Join the Out of the Blue team for a rollicking night of marine trivia and games. Bring your competitive streak and show us what you know about all things marine. The Out of the Blue Trivia Night is happening on Wednesday the 5th of August at 6.30pm. The all-ages event is at Highlander Bar in the Melbourne CBD. Full price tickets are $20, concession tickets are $10. For full details, check out our Facebook page, Out of the Blue on 3CR. Tickets can be purchased on the web at Eventbrite. Just search for Out of the Blue. Hi, my name's Belinda Jones and I'm one of the co-founders of Sydney Pick Save. Now, Sydney Pick Save is a registered charity which began about one year ago and we're part of the global save movement which is founded on Gandhi's principles of kindness, compassion and non-harm for all beings. Our four main purposes are to inform, educate, advocate and fundraise. We do this in a number of ways. We hold regular rallies, we seek to engage with the media, we build our audience through social media. We've held some market stalls in the past, we've run raffles and coming up we'll be hosting a rally dedicated to a proposed bill known as AgGag. Now the rally will be on Saturday the 8th of August at 11am at the Town Hall Steps in Sydney. For those of you that don't know, the term ag-gag describes a variety of laws which seek to hinder or gag animal protection advocates by limiting or preventing them from recording the operations of commercial agricultural facilities or from making those recordings public. Now, in recent years, Australian animal advocates have become increasingly effective in gathering and releasing this undercover footage. Much of this footage exposes extreme examples of animal cruelty, neglect, violations of animal protection laws and legalised cruelty. What most people don't actually realise is that the so-called farming practices that are actually legal in this country include really cruel practices such as teeth removal, castration, ear clipping and more, all without anaesthetic. And there's also, of course, the issue of farrowing crates and sow stalls 
which are, are confined areas so small that the pigs cannot even turn around or nestle with their young. A number of pig farms in Australia have been exposed and the level of cruelty is really abhorrent. So Sydney Pig Save have fortunately been able to share some of this footage with thanks to those gathering the evidence. This has been an incredible tool for us in educating the public about the plight of pigs in our food chain and highlighting the day-to-day cruelty that goes on. Uh, animal advocates have also begun collecting footage using unmanned aerial vehicles known as the drones uh, in an attempt to verify the welfare claims of so-called free-range farms. As a result, politicians, unfortunately, from both major political parties are calling for the introduction of ag-gag legislation. In 2014, ag-gag laws were successfully defeated in South Australia Parliament, but this year, Western Australian Liberal Senator Chris Back introduced ag-gag laws at the federal level. So if this law gets passed, it could mean harsher penalties for those who expose cruelty rather than those who actually perpetrate it. And there's a real real threat of imprisonment. The law would force investigators to surrender the first piece of evidence obtained. And this could effectively tip off industry and shut down the investigation completely. So in summing up, ag-gag laws operate to hide the truth about how animals are raised on factory farms by silencing advocates and stifling transparency. These laws effectively suppress the public's right to question our present use and abuse of farm animals while permitting the concealment of animal cruelty and neglect. So Sydney Pigsafe are really hoping to see as many members of the public there with us rallying on the 8th of August to add their voice to say no to AgGag. Now for more information, please feel welcome to visit our website which is www.sydneypigsafe.org. Thank you. That's all we have time for on Freedom of Species today. Thank you for tuning in and big thanks to Nicola, not just for the interview, but for 10 years of Lawyers for Animals. That is big. When it's a volunteer-based organisation, making the, the decade is something to celebrate. M Townsend is back in the studio next week. Uh, you can contact Freedom of Species team on info at freedomofspecies.org. Twitter, Facebook, and we also do have a website with all our podcasts. Keep listening to 3CR. Coming up next, we have the fairly new program to the 3CR grid in Psychedelia. I think they're they're either celebrating three weeks on air or it's got to be four weeks. So that's uh, celebrating a month, the first month on air. So congratulations to them as well, making that milestone. At 3pm, we have Queering the Air, Queer Engaged Commentary, followed by the fabulous Democracy Now! So please stay with 3CR on this Sunday afternoon. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.